Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast. Don't, don't be upset by a northern walk. Ronaldo, he looks at me, smiled, and he's never done it again. What's in there, Mickey? He went, oh, that's about 300 grand in there, kid. If I'm on the opposite end of an argument, Piers Morgan, that's a very comfortable position that I'm happy to be in. I think I'd be up there with one of the most irritating cricketers. Tom, we were getting on so well until that question. <laughs> you boys are going to get absolutely hammered. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast, the only podcast in the UK which is hosted by autistic teenagers who interview some of the biggest names within the world of sport. From world champions, World Cup winners, international athletes, Ryder Cup golfers, Ashes heroes, and many other sportsmen and women, we delve deep into their sporting career, the highs and the lows, and what makes them one of the best athletes in their sport. But that's enough for me. I'm going to hand you over to the stars of the show, Tom and Avtar, who host the podcast, and I'll let them introduce today's guest. See you later. Hello and welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast. Good morning, Avtar. How are you? I'm fine. Good, good. So as you heard in the introduction, it says Tom and Avatar, but sadly Tom can't join us today. So yeah. myself, Adam, is going to jump in and support Avatar. So we can we can do this together. Yeah, together. Yeah? Yeah. Joining us today on the TWS Sports Podcast is a sports coach. He's the president of the European Athletics Coaches Association. He has coached the South African Olympic team, worked with the England rugby team, and has worked with some of the best athletes in the world, such as Justin Rose and Boris Becker. Welcome to the podcast, Frank Dick. Thank you very much indeed for inviting me. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much for coming. So we'd like to start our podcast off, Frank, with a few quick-fire questions. Are you ready? Well, I hope so, yeah. <laughs> if you could go back to in one year in your life, which year would it be and why? Well, it's a, it's a very good question because I've got, I've had, I have to say I've enjoyed every year of my life. Um, so it's, it's a very hard question to uh, to to answer really, um, this 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 last year you could call a, a, a best year because we've all uh, managed to cut, struggle our way through some pretty hard times, haven't we? Uh, um, and I think from my my point of view, from a family's point of view, we've managed pretty well. Um, the the the, the, of course, you could you could argue about Olympic years when we've had when I was the chief coach and we had a lot of success. Um, uh, th- this year, I'm, I'm still working with Eddie Jones and the England rugby team, so you can imagine we were very happy after uh, the autumn series and winning yeah. against South Africa. And so, yes, after I mean, it, it's it's a very good question, but I really don't know how to answer it because. Um, <laughs> I, I just believe, I honestly believe, um, you, you make each year a good one. It's for us to do that. It's a decision that we make in our lives. What was your first ever job? Well, you'll never believe this because, but I, I, when I left school, I had no idea. And so I ended up trying to become an actuary. Uh, with the Scottish Widows Life Insurance Company. Now, an actuary is, is 
happens to be a very clever accountant kind of person, very smart with numbers and so on. I got to my second examination and I went to, went, when I saw the paper, I went up to the examiner and I said, excuse me, I think you've given me the wrong paper. Uh, and he said, no, that's the correct one. And then I knew I was never going to be an actuary. So I left <laughs> and I was fortunate enough to um, uh, be, be a non-matriculating student with Edinburgh University. So I managed to run for their athletics team. Um, I went to Loughborough for a big competition from Edinburgh. Uh, and uh, I finished second in the, the 800 meters. And a chap called Robbie Brightwell, uh, who had been an, a junior athlete with me, he was now going to be the, um, the, the captain of the Olympic team uh, in Tokyo. And he said, why don't you come to Loughborough? And so I, I didn't think a Scottish boy could come to an English institution. He said, no, we, we welcome everybody. So. I was very lucky I got in, and uh, after this gave me a second chance in life. I didn't work very hard in school, but I figured if I work hard enough here, maybe I can go somewhere. And this was the start of my involvement in teaching and then in coaching. So first job was a, was a disaster, as trying to be an actuary. But after that, I became a teacher, and after that, I became a coach. Who is the most famous people person in your phone book? Oh, I mean, apart from myself. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, I think, uh, well, I'm, after, as I say, I've been a very lucky person. I've met so many great people in my life. Um, Eddie Jones, of course, I'm very happy that Eddie's in my, my phone book. Um, as far as my athletes are concerned, I still have Daley Thompson, who I coached. He, he got an Olympic gold, two Olympic gold medals in decathlon, world record holder, world champion, uh, Commonwealth champion, European champion. So he's kind of famous, you know, and uh, we keep in touch. Um, he's, uh, it, it's, it's actually interesting to me that when you work with athletes, um, the relationship is such a good one normally. Um, that you are friends for life, you know, you become friends for life. And so, yeah, Daly's in there, uh, Boris Becker is still in there, Katarina Witt is still in there, I worked with them, uh, Gerhard Berger in Formula One. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very, I say I'm very lucky. I've met a lot of very, very famous people, if you like, um, and um, I'm privileged to be in their phone book. You were your sporting he was growing up and how did you get into the sport in, in the first place? Well, oh, good, good question. Um, I think early, the, the first sort of heroes that made me want to come and run and be an athlete uh, were people like Roger Bannister, breaking the four-minute mile, uh, Chris Chataway and that particular era of athletes. Um, then, then a little bit later, watching people like Herb Elliott, another world record holder, 1,500 meters on the mile, um, and Milka Singh. Um, I remember uh, Milka Singh was a big hero because he he had a fantastic uh, 440 yards uh, gold medal for the, in the Commonwealth for India. And I went across to uh, Dublin, to the Santry Stadium, to watch Herb Elliott and Milka Singh in the same in, in, in the same competition and, and uh, I managed to shake both of their hands uh, which was a big thrill to me because I was really quite a young boy at this, this point and it, isn't it funny that in, in life so many things eventually go full circle and come back to you many years later I was in Brisbane for the Commonwealth Games and I got a telephone call and it was from Herb Elliott the same guy that I'd worshipped when I was a young boy and he said, would you like to come and have dinner with me? And uh, that, that, of course, by this time, I was a chief coach, uh, the, the, the head coach for, uh, for, for Scotland. And I, I, I was now the director for the United Kingdom. Uh, and th there I was with my hero sitting, having dinner. It was fantastic. Wow, sounds incredible. Amazing. <laughs> so you were a very good athlete before you became a coach. Do you think it's important as a coach to have played the sport or have played the sport you're coaching at to any sort of level? Does that help you as a well, coach? 
That's a, that's a really good question because, and, and, and thank you for the compliment. Uh, um, I, I really wasn't a very good athlete at all. I was, I, I won, uh, I was very fortunate. I won the, uh, the, the, the three A's as it was, I was at the English associations, um, uh, 200 yards, it was 200 yards hurdles as a junior. Um, so that was really my biggest achievement. I then ran once for Great Britain after that. Um, but I think because I had to work hard for it, let, let me take you back a little bit before that. When, when I was at school, uh, my mum and dad were not very wealthy. You know, they didn't have a lot of money. And um, I came home from school one day and I said to my dad, uh, dad, the, the other boys have got running shoes. I'd really like to have a pair of running shoes. And he said, okay, son, I'll buy the left one. You buy the right one. <laughs> and so... I thought, yeah, you have to, this was my first picture. You have to work for what you want in life, you know? So I decided to do a milk round in Edinburgh. And in, in Edinburgh, where I lived, there were lots of tenements. And it meant I had to run, run up and down the stairs before I went to school every morning, up all, putting the milk down, carrying the newspapers, bringing in the rolls and the bread. And the fun, and, and I got enough money to buy the other shoe. Okay, so I, I, I got the shoes. But by accident, I was getting myself even fitter than the other boys because I was doing all of this extra exercise in the morning. Mm. Yeah. And so that that really taught me you have to work hard for what you want in life. And so as an athlete, I wasn't really a big, a, a very natural athlete, Adam and Abdar. I was not. Um, I worked very hard. I trained really hard to get to where I had to had had to get to. But the interesting thing about that is, if you like, by accident, I was learning that other people would have to work hard too. And because I was having to go through the pain, I understood how other people would have to go through pain. And if I was going to be a good coach, I had to make that easier for them. So I think... Um, it's probably not always a big advantage to be a, a great athlete or a sportsman or sportswoman before you come in to try and coach. Because I think you have to have a better feeling of the process of how you grow and how you, work, how, how you get to your goals in life. And if you have this in your mind, then this gives you a framework for how you can work with other people and help them develop. You then moved to America to study what do you learn most from your time in America? Yeah, another really good question. Um, what, what, again, to give you some background, when I finished at Loughborough uh, in, in my last year, uh, this was the last time that there would be a diploma because for, for graduation. Instead, there were going to be degrees in the future. So my generation were not going to have a degree from a university, whereas the younger boys and girls coming through would have. So we thought, well, this is going to be dangerous. Uh, we've got tough competition coming here. And so I decided then uh, to, to, because f first of all, I went to teach after I left Loughborough. But then I asked for permission from the school, could I go to the United States uh, and get a degree? And so I went to the University of Oregon, and the, the, the head coach at the University of Oregon was a guy called Bill Bowerman. Now, there's no big reason why you should know Bill Bowerman, but let me give you a, a, an extra story here. Bill Bowerman um, was a coach who, who thought that the running shoes that were around at the time were not all that good. So he decided to make his own in his basement. So he made these, these shoes that, that, that he called waffle sole shoes because he stuck the soles onto the shoes using his waffle iron. So he had <laughs> this design on, on, on the shoe. Um, and when, when, so again, there's no, no reason for you to know him. He was a really, really great coach, by the way. That's, that's really why I went to Oregon. I wanted to study at the feet of a great, great coach. However, just, that, just as we were leaving, a young boy called Phil Knight was at university doing a postgraduate study in business. Bill, Phil Knight looked at what Bill was doing and thought, hmm, there could be a business in this. So they got together 
And do you know what company they created? Nike. Nike. Oh, wow. Phil Knight, Phil Barman. Huh? I didn't know. How that. about that? And you know, to create the company, to build their business, um, they went round all the houses, or as many houses as they could in, in, in Eugene, in Oregon, uh, and asked them if they would like to invest $100 in this new company. And so that's how Nike all started. Wow. However, you, you, to answer your question, what did I learn most there? Well, first of all, I had very tough, tough taskmasters in physiology and anatomy at that university. And, and I, I really worked very hard to understand more about the sports sciences. But also, Bill Bauman was such a good coach. I mean, he, 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 he made life very simple. He, he, he was almost mathematical in how he progressed training programs. But he also was a, 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 he was really quite a student of human beings, you know, just understanding us. And I remember, that, that this will sound silly, okay, but I remember he came out uh, with one comment when he brought us all together for the first time. He said, you know, uh, maybe some days you're going to miss a, a session, a training session. But you don't do, you don't double up the next day. I mean, after all, if you miss your breakfast, you don't have two lunches, which okay. sounds very silly. Which it, but exactly, it sounds, how, how crazy is that? But it's true, right? Because your body keeps on adapting and adjusts, it, it adjusts to how you're training it. Um, and so what, you might say, well, surely you need every training session. No, sometimes you don't. But the body has its own way of making up. In 1979, you became British Athletics Federation Director of Coaching. So can you tell us a little bit about that role and is it a role you enjoyed? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was a fantastic. Can, can you imagine being asked to look after the whole of the United Kingdom uh, in a sport <laughs> to be the boss? Uh, and yeah, this, this was a huge thrill for me. Uh, I, I knew it wasn't going to be all that easy because being an, an, the national coach for Scotland, Scotland's kind of a small country. And now you were going to look after the whole of the United Kingdom, including Scotland. Of course, another, of course, another national coach would come into that job. Um, but uh, what, I'd, what I'd been doing at that point is I, I didn't accept that all of the, the current knowledge that we had in United Kingdom in terms of coaching was enough. Um, I decided to look outside, not only um, to other countries and how they were coaching in track and field, but to look at coaching in general in other sports. because. Sometimes you can learn big lessons from outside your own specialist field. And so um, I really buckled down at that point. And I, 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 by that time, I'd written the first book um, in English on uh, modern theories of periodiz periodization as the planning of your year training, training plans and so on. Um, because a lot of work had been done by uh, Matveyev and the Soviet Union at that point. I know the Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore, Avatar, but it's down to Russia. But can you imagine the whole of the Soviet Union? They were a very, very powerful um, sport, sporting uh, nation. And East Germany, the German Democratic Republic, they'd done a lot of work in this. And I, I, I spent a lot of my own money just getting these things translated so that it could understand everything that I could possibly understand about uh, coach development, coach education, um, the preparation of athletes, how you meet athletes' needs, how you can create a performance network around them. Um, and yeah, as, as a role, it was fantastic. I was going to lead my country to, to eventually four Olympic Games, um, and they were all very successful ones. I mean, the, the least successful was the one in the CO, where I think we had seven silver medals, but no gold medals, which upset me a great deal. Uh, but, we, but when we came back four years later, we had a world record with Sally Gunnell uh, and a gold medal in the 400 meters hurdles. And also, of course, Linford Christie won the, the 100 meters. So, yeah, great, a great, great experience in my life. Um, because it also allowed me um, to learn about life. You know, one of the wonderful things about coaching is, I believe, is that you're not only preparing athletes for the arena to go in and compete and fight, 
but you're also preparing them for life through their experience of sport. Because sport is a big, a really great metaphor for life. There's challenges out there all the time. You win some, you lose some. Sometimes you're trying to defend. Sometimes you're trying to challenge and push forward. Uh, some, sometimes you have to deal with success and deal with failure. For, for you, you might say, well, why do you have to deal with success? Well, if you're successful, um, it can be dangerous because you can become complacent and think that, well, that's good enough. But there's always something better you can do in life. There's always something you can do differently. And sport teaches you this big time. Um, and you were credited, during our research yesterday, we, we lots of people credited you with really improving GB athletics. And you worked with some great athletes such as Sebco, Steve Cram, Daley Thompson, as you mentioned. What did you do during the time to have a real impact on the GP squad, do you think? Well, good question. I, I think in, in order of priority, the first thing I was really strong about was the importance of making sure coaches had access to knowledge. In other words, the coach education program, to me, was number one priority, making sure that coaches really knew what they had to do, whatever level of athlete they worked with, whether it was beginners, developers, or high performers. I, I then was pretty meticulous on, on, on how you prepare um, to go to a major championships, the homework that you have to do to make sure that all the circumstances and conditions are right when the athletes get to a major championships. And so every year, in, by the autumn, I prepared a, a, a booklet for any athlete who might be going to the big competition the next year and their coaches and anyone else who needed to know the, the, the level of preparation, I made sure that this booklet went out to everyone to help them get their mind on where they were going, the, the competition and so on. I then, coming back to the, 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 the work I'd been doing on understanding planning and so on, um, I had good conversations with the coaches of the athletes. So understand this. Seb was in my team, so was Steve, so, so was Daly. But Daly was a personal athlete, so I could work personally with him all the time. But with Seb and with Steve and with any of the other athletes who were going to aspire to greatness, my conversation was not with them, but with their coaches. Because if, if, if this is the way I see it after. Um, uh, athletes make excellence happen. Coaches make excellence possible. Very true, so yeah. it's our job as coaches to create that world, to make excellence possible. And so that's, if you're like, I don't know what you would want to call that, a concept or whatever, but, but this, this was an important concept that I had to get out there, the importance of the coach's role in all of this. I was very clear that things should not be centralized. In other words, don't bring everybody into the middle and try to make them strong. Try to provide a service out around the country to the coaches who will work with the athletes because that, that's their comfort zone at the moment. They live at home, they're looked after well and so on. There was not the same amount of money then as there is now where you could actually give, give athletes a lot of money to keep training. Every one of the athletes who were in the British team at that time had other jobs. None of them were full-time athletes. And so I think coming back to it, educate your coaches, make sure your planning uh, is meticulous as the head coach so that things are, are right for them and provide the right service to the coaches so that they make excellence possible for the athletes. In 1980, you wrote a book called Sports Training Principles. And we were reading that some people said the book was quite ahead of its time because you applied science with sport. What are your memories of writing that book? And did you see science having such an impact in sport? Oh, yes, yes. Thank, thank you for the, uh, for the reflection on that. Um, okay, in these days, okay, it's a long, long time ago now. In these days, um, there was no such thing as sports science. I mean, if people were getting, getting involved in that area, it was kind of like a hobby. I mean, there are top authorities now, like Ron Mom, a friend of mine in, in nutrition, uh, and Clyde Williams, who was the head of Loughborough for well. 
they, they were at uh, Aberdeen University when I was the head coach in Scotland. And what they were doing for sport was basically as a hobby. You know, that it wasn't a profession. Now, of course, it is a profession, but in these days it wasn't. And I got it into my head, one day this is going to change. And, but until that happens, somebody has to put together a book that looks at the various areas of, of performance-related science uh, and try to make it fuse with the coaching, uh, with the coach's knowledge so that we could be better coaches. That was, very, that was really the whole purpose behind it. So how did, how did I feel writing it? Well, I'll tell you exactly how I felt, exhausted. It, was, <laughs> it started off, I, I spent six weeks, that's all, six weeks. I mean, over, over time, I'd been collecting things. But in six weeks, I, I, what, what I would do is get up um, at, at five o'clock in the morning and do some writing. Uh, go to do my national coaches work during the day, maybe get home about 10 o'clock at night, um, start working then through to about two o'clock in the morning. This is why I was exhausted. I was taking something like three to four hours sleep a night to try to get this done. And I was, I'm, I'm a very untidy worker. Um, I, I could show you my desk here and it would prove it. Uh, in What I did was with each piece of work I was doing, I just laid it, laid it on my living room floor um, because in my mind, I knew where everything was, you know, um, and I used to examine different bits each night. And over a period of six weeks, I pulled the entire book together. It finished. Uh, I finished it on New Year's Eve. I think it was 79. No, no New Year's Eve 78. I think it was. I, I immediately got flu. Right. I don't know, for, for, because I hadn't been seeing it. I immediately went down. I really was, I, I did it absolutely wrong. I should never have, have worked like that, because it's not good for your health. Um, and then the book came, came out, and, and then somebody said to me, it's, it's too complicated, it's too, too big. Can you not do something simpler? And so I thought, well, now that I've done the work, I wonder if I can do that. And so I then wrote a small booklet called training theory and i did that in six days <laughs> so I, I i think um I'm, I'm very pleased i did it and the, the, it's on its sixth edition now i think yes i've got one up here um it's on its sixth edition now and i tell you what, what's been interesting about about the book and its evolution when i started as i said nobody else seemed to be talking about sports science so i wrote the whole thing but then as time went on sports science began to seriously grow and so how could i keep pace with that and so then in the most recent edition i've got several people writing different chapters for me because they're the experts now i'm not and what i all, all i can do is try to bring it together so that it has a flow and i think that's something that we um banked on in life the three things you need to know the first is You've got to know what you know. Second, you've got to know what you don't know. And third, you've got to know somebody who does. <laughs> Very because true. Eventually, it's because of the people you, who you know who can give you extra knowledge that you'll grow because we can't grow fast enough on our own. Very true. And looking at sports teams now and the big football teams and things like that, sports scientists are some of the most important people at the club, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely, and and I think what's happened now is there's so much data. This is this is Avatar's generation coming through now. All the, all the data kids are coming through. They understand these things much better than we adults do. Much better. I mean, my grandson is two, and I'm pretty sure in the next couple of years he's going to be teaching me about life. <laughs> me teaching, you know, um, but I, I think because of this groundswell of knowledge that's coming through and information and data. I think the most important thing now is data management, is to have people on your side who can distill this so that you can understand, make it digestible so that we can use, we can use it to move forward. The Henshaw's Insurance Group is one of the top 100 independent insurance brokers in the country and is here to bring you peace in mind. 
We've been in business for over 50 years and have offices in Newport, Shrewsbury and Stafford. Our 45 plus strong team deals with both business and personal insurance. And we offer a free, no obligation, consultations and quotations. So give us a call today. So you left your role at a very successful successful team GB in 1994. Why do you decide to leave? Well, okay. Um, I don't suppose it's a secret anymore. What what was happening was that uh, British athletics at that point um, were going through a very bad time financially, and uh, we, we we had we, we'd, we'd had very successful years. We'd won the European Cup. We'd, we were uh, one of the top nations in Europe. When when I started, we were just a kind of second division kind of team. Um, and I, I thought I'd done a good job in leading the coaches. I mean, the, the, it was the coaches who did all the work. I, I was the boss, but I, so they, they did all the, the work. I was very lucky through that period. And we'd gone up to a really high level. Um, and suddenly I was told that um, I'd have to cut my budget. Now, already we had a much smaller budget than, say, France or Germany or, or, or Italy. Uh, certainly smaller one than, than the Soviet Union and, and Russia and so on. We had really a tiny budget, but we were successful with this. And I, now I was going to be asked to work with less. So I said to the, uh, the, 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 the decision makers in the sport, um, you, you're, you're, you're leaving me with, with, with some serious complications here. I'm, I'm either going to... to sack some of my coaches or I'm going to have to cut the junior program. And in either case, and and so somebody said, well, that's your choice. I said, well, in either case, I promise you for as long as you keep that budget cut for every year that you do that, it will take you at least three years to come back. And then I got a good think about it. And I thought, well, no, I, um, it's not my place anymore. I, you, you, there are certain certain things you cannot do unless you have the resources, and so yes, then I, I decided to leave, and it was it was a it was a, um, a very difficult choice as you can imagine because even now athletics is my biggest passion in life, and and when 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 I left, a, a lot of people phoned me up and said you're crazy. I mean, this is all you can do. I said, well, I hope nobody's going to write that in my grave at the end of, <laughs> end of my life. This is all you can do, Frank. And so I, I did a little exercise, and I, I think everybody at some point in their life should do this exercise. I took a pit, uh, took an A4 pad with, I think it's 31 lines on it or something like that, and I started at the top. And in each line, I wrote, I had to write down something that met three conditions. One, was I good at it? Two, did I like doing it? Three, might it make some money? And I I, I got pretty well the whole page, different things. Like I knew I could talk, like I'm talking now, so I could present. I knew I could write. I I knew I could lecture. Um, I I knew I could, I knew something about leading. I knew something about, and so it made me have a really good look at just how many things I really knew. And you should try this when you don't worry about the money side, but you should try this when you come offline. Take a piece of paper and start doing that. And suddenly you realize just how much you know in life, just how many things you could do in life. Well, I, uh, to date, I haven't got past the fifth line. Right? <laughs> and I'm really, uh, uh, because w- one of the things I did um, was take what I'd learned from sport. Um, into the business world. So I, I, I wrote two books then. One was called Winning and the other one's called Winning Matters. Um, really exp- trying to, to take all the principles we understand in sport and try to make them work for people in business and indeed in life. Because I think, again, coming back to my one of my earlier comments, um, I, I, I think we do in sport as coaches, we prepare people for the arena 
and through that experience for life. And so, I, 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 so for example, in before Christmas, in four or five different occasions, I will be speaking to audiences from the world of business um, uh, and using sport with the kind of stories that we're, tell, we're, we're exchanging here to help people be better in their lives. But oddly enough, I'm still coaching. I mean, I'm working with Eddie Jones to work with his coaches. Um, and Seb Cole, who's now the president of World Athletics, asked me if I could bring together a group, which we've called the Global Athletics Coaching Academy, uh, to try to help develop coaching throughout the world. So I'm still, I still haven't lost that side of things. And you've worked with a number of sportsmen and women outside of athletics, such as major golf winner Justin Rose. And I presume you're not a golf coach, you're not, no, I don't know how good you are at golf, but how, so how did you get involved with Justin Rose and how do you transfer your athletics coaching into coaching a golfer? The principles of coaching apply everywhere, you know. I think they apply, uh, they, they apply in life, they apply in Sport, obviously, they apply in business. Um, and so what I said about athletics, preparing people to go to a championships and, and deliver on the day, because that really, I suppose, if, if, that's, if, if, if people sort of look at my life and, and, and try to, well, what was the one strongest thing in Frank's coaching? It was preparing people to deliver on the day because... Uh, you don't often you, you don't get a choice in which day you're going to compete to go for an Olympic gold medal. Somebody's decided that for you, and the time of day. Even. And so um, that was my strength. And it's these it's, it's it's these kind of principles that I would pass on to whether it's Justin, Katrina Witt, or, or whatever. Um, but what I would never tell them about is how they play golf or how they how they play tennis because I'm really not good at it. Uh, only understand the people side and how you prepare for um, major competition. So there's kind of a process to it, uh, Adam. The, the way I see developing someone is that, f first of all, you, you're the light that lights their path because they don't know where they're going, right? So the coach, figuratively speaking, is providing the light. Next, you, you give light to the athletes so that they can make their own way. So that you, so they can see where they're going forward, uh, but they generate that light themselves. Next, you're the mirror that reflects their light, and finally, you must step out of the light, right? or eventually you will cast shadows. You've got to be willing to take to to go in that journey, and the, the principles of guiding people through that journey are as relevant um, in golf as they are in athletics, as they are in business, as they are in teaching at school. And looking currently, Frank, at the coaches in the world, whether that be football, rugby, athletics, cricket, is there a coach that you maybe think is the best or someone that you, you look up to and think, yes, they're, they're, they are at the top of their game right now and they're getting the most out of their players or an individual? <laughs> Well, of course, we've got we've got a genius at Manchester City. We have um, Klopp, of course, at, 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 at Liverpool. I've got a lot of respect for them. Lisa Alexander, the uh, the netball coach from Australia, um, I think she's one of the finest coaches on the planet. Uh, Eddie, of course, uh, um, I, I think that he's he's a great. He really understands the coaching process. Um, Greg Popovich. No reason why you should know Greg Popovich, but he is um, he coached the United States team um, through to uh, win the, the 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 gold medal in, in basketball this time round, and he did so with a team that really was struggling to begin with uh, to be brought together because uh, they, they lost a couple of times in the pre uh, in, for the first time in history in in the run up to the games. Um, they even lost to France uh, in the first round, uh, for the first rounds, uh, but eventually came through to, to win. And there's also, my, my, my brain's gone, the, the chap who is the, oh, I'll come back to a minute, the chap who is the, the coach to the Australian basketball team, I think deserves a big pat, pat on the back because they got a bronze medal 
and basketball's never really been very big in Australia. No. So yeah, there there are um, there are quite a few good coaches out there. There are other coaches that probably get a big name and huge salaries, but they're not all that good at all. Um, but, but I won't go into I won't go into that territory. <laughs> You only have a few more days to vote for the TWS Sports Podcast to win a Global Sports Podcast Award. Voting closes on the Sunday, the 6th of March, so you really haven't got long to vote. To vote for us to win in the Best Equality and Social Impact category, please visit www.sportspodcastawards.com, register, and then search for the Best Equality and Social Impact category, and please vote for the TWS Sports Podcast. So you haven't got long, a few more days to vote, Voting closes Sunday, the 6th of March. So please vote for us. We'd really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And let's get back on with the episode. In 2006, you working with the England rugby team. What role, role do you have any? And what work doing you do? Well, I think good try. So in 2016, you worked with the England rugby team. What sort of role did you have with the team and what work did you do and moving forward now and maybe to the next World Cup, what sort of role are you doing and, and how are you finding work well, with the team? I, I, I don't work with the players. Um, that's that's the coach's job. What what I, I do at, at Eddie's invitation is work with the coaches uh, because, and again, this comes back to the importance of, of coach education and coach development. Um, they're they an exceptionally good group of coaches, by the way, an exceptionally good group of coaches. And so you might be saying, well, well, what can you, if they're that good, how, how do they need to learn more? Well, when it comes to learning life, it's a never ending journey. You never arrive. There's always something you can do better or do differently. Um, and the, these coaches are very, very knowledge hungry. They, they, they want to know more. They, 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 they want to, whether it's from other sports, whether it's from other fields. Um, and it, it's just, and, and a lot of the ideas for moving forward don't come from me. They come from the coaches themselves uh, and from Eddie. Um, and so I'm just part of helping make, make, make that happen. I think they need, might need you to coach some of the coaches at Manchester United, Frank. Well, actually, oddly enough, I'm a, 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 Alex Ferguson's a, a good friend. I've known Alex since he was with Aberdeen. Um, and um, yeah, they've gone through a, a, a tough old time at the moment. I think really, if you, if, if you think of the, cr- the chronology of all of this, when Alex left, um, it was a big hole. I mean, the, the, it, didn't, it didn't seem to me uh, as if Manchester United had a plan for what would happen next. But they knew that day was going to come sooner or later. It might have been a good idea to be thinking ahead of the game and all of that. However, the other difficult thing, of course, is that any new manager coming in has got a very difficult task because you you don't create your own team. You, You actually inherit it for the most part. And what you're also inheriting is the way that these coaches work. The way that the athletes or the players operate. Um, so it, what you can't do is come in and say this is what you're going to do. You can only coach what's in front of you, and so you, you should not come in with a preconception of what what's going to happen. You may, you might have a long term plan at the back of your mind, but what you have to do is adjust your style and your thinking to the people who you have in front of you now, to get the best out of out of them because they're the people on the field, they're the people who, who, who will deliver, they'll make it happen. It, this comes back to how do, we, how do we as coaches create a picture to make it possible? That doesn't mean to say that you're going to have that same team forever, because gradually as, as, as people adapt and come in, you can begin to adjust this and adjust that and so on. Let, 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 let me give you an example of how that that works. Let's say as an athletics coach, um, let's let, let's say I was going to coach you, Avtar, to be a 110 meters hurdler, and that's your ambition. You want to run the Olympic Olympics 110 meters hurdles, and so we go to the track, and uh, you've never hurdled in your life before. Mm-hmm. So, so what I cannot do is measure out 110 meters, put the put the hurdles at three foot six inches and 10 meters. You cannot do that. 
right? Because you'll never be able to climb over them. You'll need a, a pole vault stick to get mm. over them. So, a uh, pole vault pole. Um, so what do we do? I put canes down on the, on the track and I put them at a distance that allows you to have three strides between each because that's the rhythm of the race, three strides between each hurdle. So that if you're going to be left leap, left leg leap, leap, that's happening over each hurdle. And from the very beginning, I'm putting into your mind that this is a sprint with 10 modifications, right? It's a sprint. And so you sprint across them. I ask you to go even faster. I have to move the, the canes a little bit further apart. I then start to raise the canes a little bit. And then you have eventually you have to adjust what you're doing with your leading leg to pick, pick it up and down fast. And then eventually it's, it's high enough for you to have to work on what you're going to do with your trail leg. And over a period of time, we, we, we stretch the distance, we raise the barriers, and one day, there you have them, Olymp Olympic, uh, 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 Olympic spacings and Olymp Olympic heights. Um, and so what I've done is I've adapted the event to you before I've asked you to adapt to the event. I've adapted my style to you before I ask you to adapt to my style. And I think that's the key to coaching at, 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 at that point. Does that, does that all make sense? Yeah, yes. it does actually make very good sense. Yes, yeah. true. Recently worked with South Africa Sports Olympic Committee in preparation for the Rio Olympics. So was that a, a role that you enjoyed? And it was, we were reading it's quite a successful Olympics for South Africa. And how did you find working with the team? Or the coaches? Yeah, when, when you work with another culture, um, you, again, it comes back to my point, you better adapt to them before you try to get them to adapt to you. Um, I, I, I thought it was, uh, it, was, it was a great experience. It was my job, again, to work with the coaches because what we, we had a target of getting 10 medals. Fortunately, we, did, we, we got the 10 medals. Um, but it was working not only with the coaches to the, for the, uh, the, the Olympic team, but also for the Paralympic team. Um, uh, and and, and, and that, that in itself, that was probably one of the first times I'd worked so intensely with coaches to Paralympians. Um, and I, 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 I really found that um, fascinating, but educational, because it, it, it made me think, we use this word disability, right? We use this word disability, and I don't think we're entitled to use that word. I think that uh, the, the, a long time ago, the, the, one of the sports ministers in the UK was Colin Moynihan. And um, he wrote a paper about coaching the, the, the Paralympians and so on. And, and his paper was called Building on Ability. The fact is, we're just talking about different levels of ability. We are not talking about disability. And I think that's I, I I think that's a really important concept that all of us have to have in life. We've each got different levels of ability, right? And um, with these different levels of ability, there comes there comes certain strengths and certain weaknesses. So, for example, somebody somebody who who, who is who, who is blind. Um, they have got an extraordinary capacity to remember facts because they can't see them and they can't write them down. And so if, you, if, you, if, if we were having a – if somebody was blind listening into this conversation that we've had today, they would be far more accurate in telling you what the conversation was afterwards than anybody else. Yeah. Okay. So I, I think um, – I, I, I think that was a big lesson that I learned in, in, in South Africa. Also, um, I, I got to, to, to was a bit of a bit of a shock to me in seeing the differences in the social context. That there were some extraordinary levels of poverty there. I tried to find some way to get the people in the townships more engaged in as some aspect of sport to give them another sense of purpose in life, to help them grow. The coaches I had were outstanding. There was a full lady called Anne Sbota. Better you'd think you'd met Miss Marples. That's mm -hmm. a, a lovely old lady. Um, 
and and she she coached Wade Kirk to um, an, the, the, an Olympic gold medal and world record in the four hundred meters. So yeah, that was a, that was really a good experience. It's a beautiful country. If if either of you ever have a chance to go to South Africa, go there. It's one of the most beautiful countries in the world. I want to take you, if if I can, and I apologise, to maybe a low point in your career. Um, is there a time in your career you look back and think you were maybe struggling or you were quite quite low? And how did you get yourself out of that out of that situation? And, and any advice you would give to a, a sportsman or woman who's who's at a low point and how can they get out of it? Okay, when I, I can't tell you what a pretty miserable point in my life was. Um, I was Scottish national coach, and we had the Commonwealth Games in Christchurch, and it was a disaster. The worst, worst experience of my life. I think we got one medal out of the whole thing. It was terrible. And I came home, and I was feeling really pretty miserable about it. Um, and I got a, a phone call uh, from Jock Steen. Uh, Jock Steen was the manager of Celtic, bench manager of Scotland. Now, I'm a Rangers fan, so I was very mm. surprised that I got a call from the Celtic manager. Um, and he said, um, I'd like you to have lunch with me, Frank. And, and the way he was, the, the tone of the voice was, it, it, I didn't sort of hear it as an invitation. It was more like an, an order. So I, I decided I'd better go. And uh, we, we met up in Glasgow and we're walking down the street to the restaurant. And he said, um, Listen, son. Um, your head's still down. And I said, yeah, well, you know, press have murdered me and so on. He said, okay, let me ask you a question. There's traffic lights in front of us here. How many people do you think there are between us and the traffic lights? And I said, uh, well, a hundred. He said, well, I'll tell you something. At least 99 of them think they know more about football than me. <laughs> but they're not accountable for their opinions. I'm accountable for mine. And I thought that's that's a big lesson um, for 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 everybody. Remember that when you, if you're the person in the arena, you will be your best judge of what what whether it's worked or whether it hasn't. Um, and and you'll reprimand yourself if it's not going right, and you'll find a way to make it right the next time round. And then, of course, you've got to have a picture of standards at that point. Another story, as, as a young Scottish national coach, I really wanted to get, I've already told you how keen I am on education, I wanted to get um, the European Athletics Coaches Association's conference to come to the UK. And so uh, I made a bid for it. I went all the way to Athens uh, to the previous conference and they said, yes, you can have it. So we're going to have it in Edinburgh. Well, it was a freezing cold winter, the worst I can, I can imagine. The conference was going to be on the 4th of January, and it started snowing in November, and the snow was still on the ground on, on, on the February. Um, <laughs> when the university went down, they shut off the heating. And so when did they switch it back on again? The 3rd of January. <laughs> so when we went to the... When we went into the room, the, the, the hall, it was absolutely freezing. I mean, everybody was sitting there with their overcoats on, scarves around their faces, hats pulled down, steam coming out of the mouths. It looked like a fog scene in, in, the, in the room. <laughs> and I, I was mortified. And I went to see the, my boss, the same guy who employed me, Bob Adams, uh, who told me that they believed in me. And... I said to uh, I said to Bob, oh, this is terrible, Bob. What will they think? He said, Frank, you know your trouble? You think that 99% is a failure, but most people think that 51% is a win. And I said to him, Bob, I never want to accept 51% as a win. I always want to go for 100%. And that, if you like, is like Mike, the Michelangelo quote. Said the problem in life is not aiming too high and falling short, it's aiming too low and hitting the target. There's nothing wrong with aspiring to great things in life and going for the very best. If you fall short, you fall short, but you know where you were going, and that's certainly better than these guys who go through life simply trying not to fail. 
we watched one of your speeches yesterday, didn't we? And you were talking about learning faster than your opponents. So what do you mean? Yeah. What do you mean by this? Because you, you said you spoke quite a lot about it, and it's one of your your things that you, you say quite a lot, quite a lot. Mm. Yeah, well, it's the, the quote is from from, from a guy called Aridius, um, who worked for Shell Exploration. Um, probably the only sustainable competitive advantage we have in life, ability to learn faster than the opposition. Well, I've modified that a little bit now. I say learn better and faster than the opposition. Um, because um, that's that's it. And it comes back to educational learning. I've said it several times uh, through the, through, through the, the, the web, webinar here. Um, I think it's really important um, that that you, you you that in everything you do, there's always something you can do better and do differently. No matter you, you, you might have been the most fantastic performance of your life, but don't get satisfied with that. There will always be another level. What can we do better, and what can we do differently? And this is a very simple exercise for us to do. Just take take the five minutes at the end of the day. And I tell you what, I don't, don't, I don't, don't know if any of your, any of the team out there, uh, Twitter, um, but I, I do a tweet every night, and it's a personal discipline. This I try to think of a, a coaching comment, a coaching point um, that's come to me in the course of the day. It could have been a fantastic day. It could have been a disaster of a day. But can I pick something out of today? Uh, that I've learned and I want to pass on to other people. Um, and I think I've been doing that for five years now. So there's quite a few coaching points stuck in there. Um, and I, I think that is part of, if you like, me trying to live my own philosophy of learning faster and better. And I think take time each day to do that. Catch it at the end of the day. Apart from anything else, it really encourages you to clear your mind and think of, what can I do next? Where can I go from here? How can I take this up to the next? To yeah, the I noticed level? that on your on your Twitter. I started following you, and I noticed you put them little quotes quotes every day, and they're really good. Well, thank you. Boris Johnson said, "There's 232 million pound investment into Team GB in the lead up to next Olympics. In your opinion, what would your priority be on spending this money? What area would you aim to improve if you could?" Ooh, I think it would come. It, in, in as much as it costs, it would cost money, and I don't think it would cost a lot. I'd always come back to um, making sure that the coaches are ahead of the game of change. They are learning faster and faster and better and better. It will always come to that. The other, the other side of that is, and I'm, go, I'm going to sound like a, a, a grumpy, one of the grump, grumpy guys um, from the Muppets here. Um, <laughs> I think, I think sometimes we give people too much. Um, I think, and, and I, know, I know the athletes would would sh- sh- shoot me for this, but I think I think we're too generous with the athletes. Um, I think. I think you've got to learn in life to work for things. You've, you've got to get that into your character very, very early on, um, and, uh, and 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 not just think you're entitled. You know, nobody's entitled out there. None of us is entitled. You've got you've got to earn your place. You've got to work for it. The, the way I picture it is is, is this, guys. The, can you imagine being in a circus? And at the top of the circus, there's a high wire, and a trapeze artist is going to walk across this wire. Well, for, for anybody who's going to walk that wire, there has to be a very specific tension in that wire for that person. And the tension in my mind is created between challenging them at one side and supporting them at the other. If you give too much support, the wires slack and they go nowhere. If there's too much challenge, you'll snap the wire and they'll go nowhere. I can't tell coaches what the right tension is for, for them. They've, you, they've got to work that out for, for, for the athletes that they're coaching. But part of the challenge is not making it easy, not, not, not having the sense that, you know, you do have, it's, and I know you've, you've heard the presentations now, you know that I always start off with calling, saying that people are either valley people or mountain people. Um, 
you, you've got to you've, you've got to make the mountain tough, because every mountain you climb in life is simply preparation for the ones to come. And the people who tackle the toughest ones now are better prepared for the even tougher ones that are coming. The people who look for the easy way, they're not prepared for the tough stuff. And so I'd, I'd say it sounds like being a harsh father here. It sounds like being a, a Mr. Grumpy. Um, but, but I honestly believe that we do athletes a disservice when we remove from them the need to fight and the need to, uh, if you like, earn their way, make their way. In sports, um, especially. especially football, you see a lot of coach getting sacked. Do you agree with this or do you think a coach needs a longer to uh, creative and built and successful successful teams? Good try. Again, you've, you've obviously researched your questions well here. These, the, 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 these are good. Um, first of all, Football managers don't have a very tough time, you know. I know they they may they may shout me down for that, but I mean, if if they get fired, they still walk away with a fair old bit of compensation. It's not as if they'll lose economically on the whole thing. And so I think in in part, uh, I I think that should be changed. But that's just me. Um, but if we what's happening out there. The, the, the board of directors of any football team, what do they want to see? Win, win, win every week, right? So it's very short term, right? In, if, if a club is going to be successful, if a nation is going to be successful, you've got to have a, a kind of a sense of double vision, right? You've got to have a long-term vision. How do you create sustainable achievement in your club, or in your, in, in your sport as a nation. And that is separate from how do we hit the milestones today for this, whether it's the Six Nations coming up, whether it's the Premiership League in football, um, whether it's the European Championships for track and field one year. We, you've got a long-term vision, and that requires a very specific and different strategy to how we develop the short develop for short-term success. Unfortunately, the cl clubs are not encouraged for the most part. Some clubs are, but for the most part, they're not encouraged to think term. They, they, they want results now, and that's all that matters. Let's keep, see if we can get promoted. Let's see if we, let's keep the sponsors happy. Let's, and, uh, but that kills the long-term. In, in my sense of double vision, when you're dealing with the short term, for example, again, in rugby, when you're dealing with the autumn series that we've just finished, um, of course, that's an end in itself. But because we've got the longer term vision to win the Rugby World Cup, then what you do now must relate to how you're preparing for the Rugby World Cup. So it, the, the two things are closely connected. I think in football, too often, there's no thought about the long-term um, uh, uh, um, sustainable achievement. There's only thought about this season, and um, that catches people out. And, so, and you, you'll know the statistics on this, I'm quite sure. But I think it's the average uh, tenure of man managers in the premiership and championships is something like one and a half years. That's yes. incredible. How can you grow in? How can you grow anything from that? You're inheriting a team. You're not able to create it from the outset. You're inheriting it. Um, if you're not careful, you can get yourself into such a, a almost a sense of uh, too much urgency. Um, for you, you, you get frustrated at the way they're playing, so you, you try to make them play in a different way, and it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. As I say, you. You've got to, all these things that we've been talking about here. Every one of them takes time, guys. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. That was, I apologise, that was a bit longer than we expected, but really, really appreciate all your answers and your honesty and speaking so much so okay. well for us. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thanks, thanks you, Adam. Thanks, Avtar, for your mm -hmm. time. Very good questions, Avtar. Thank you for these. Mm -hmm. um, 
best wishes to all your friends at school there. Thank yes, you. thank you so much, Frank. And yes, all the best. See you, bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So after Frank's just gone, how do you yeah. feel that podcast went? Amazing, actually amazing. Yeah, he told lots of really interesting stories. And what was your favourite story he told us? Um, my favourite story is he's he's saying is that um, Alex Ferguson, and then um, he told us about him what um, the manager of, uh, before his Man United manager, and then um, before Oli Sack. And um, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So he spoke a lot about Alex Ferguson and said yeah. that we need to give coaches, whatever sport, coaches. the time to develop a culture of the club, develop yeah. a team, and um, not just sack them yeah. straight away, which was, which was really interesting. Yeah. I really enjoyed listening to him speak about coaching coaches. So yeah. he transferred his coaching skills from athletics into golf, into tennis, into Formula One. And he was talking a lot about coaching the person and coaching the coach of the team or coaching the coach of the person and developing them whatever sport that they did. So I really, really enjoyed it. It was nice to hear mm. um, a different point of view rather than a sportsman as such speaking to, to a coach, which was which was really enjoyable. Yeah. So thank you so much, After. You thank did you, really well Adam. on your own with me, thank without you. Tom. So congratulations. Thank you. And thank you all for listening and we'll hope to see you all next week. The TWS Sports Podcast combines autism and sport. This unique podcast is hosted by children with autism, and each week they interview famous sportsmen and women from around the world. The TWS Sports Podcast takes you deep into the sports star's career, their highs and lows, what happens away from the field of play, and so much more. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. The TWS Sports Podcast, where autism and sports combine. Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.